We wanted to make sure as we merged this company that it truly was focused on a business line focus, not a regional focus. So that was a bigger undertaking than was necessarily apparent in the beginning to, to make that change happen. But again, I think the right one. Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Episode 37. Now, can you believe that? I thought to myself, well, that's not too bad, 37. And then I was looking at my podcast that I listened to and the most recent one I listened to, I scrolled down and it said, see all 809 episodes. And suddenly 37 didn't sound like so much at all. But in today's episode, I'm speaking with Jennifer Awamit. Jennifer is the Executive Vice President, General Counsel and Company Secretary at NXP Semiconductors. She's been in that position, I think, since 2018, been with the company since around 2015. And it's a fantastic story. We kick off the story, and I love this line because I got this from some research I did about Jennifer, but there was this fantastic line we start with, and that's how the scientist and artist turned lawyer. So that's a bit of an insight into Jennifer's background. You're going to really enjoy the discussion. We talked about a whole lot of things. Some standouts for me, it was around basically the transforming and the changing role of the general counsel, how it's been moving really much more to ethics, risk risk management, as we know, corporate governance, ESG, sustainability. We've heard a lot of those themes before. I love the way that, uh, that Jennifer summarized it for me. She talked about the the general counsel becoming the corporate conscience. And I just love that. The corporate conscience, that judgment experience across all of those areas is what the senior leadership team is looking for these days. So it's a, as usual, a fascinating discussion. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Now, Jennifer, you're currently, of course, the Executive Vice President, General Counsel and Company Secretary of NXP Semiconductors. You've been with NXP, I think, since around 2015. But of course, there's a story before that. And I'd love to learn a little bit about the Jennifer Womatt story. And if I can do a little segue, which I read, which I'd love to kind of set the scene for, because I thought this was a, a really interesting segue. I read, and that's how the scientist and artist turned lawyer. Can you pick us up from there? Sure. And I think that was my undergraduate school of an article they did a couple years ago. And it is a bit of an interesting story and a long one. So I'll try to uh, sum it up, you know, not without taking the whole uh, time tonight. But uh, I've often summed up my story, my life story in a way with uh, a reference to the old Forrest Gump quote, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to Yep. I love it. And, you know, I, but you got to try a lot of different selections to figure out what you like best. And so that, that sort of sums up how I ended up where I am. And, and it is a bit of an unusual path. I never planned to be a lawyer, never had any interest in being a lawyer as a, as a kid. I did have a strong interest in science and also in art and, you know, very kind of bipolar uh, sort of uh, interests. In uh, college, I went to a liberal arts college 
which encouraged that, in fact. You know, I guess as a child, I aspired to be a librarian. So that kind of, you know, when I look back, says I did like reading and I liked books a lot. But I, you know, I had a really hard time kind of picking early on in my college career, whether to take an art path or a science path and had even at one point thought about doing both with something like biomedical illustration, but came to realize I didn't really like creating art on demand when I was taking art classes. And that was probably going to be more of a hobby. And it didn't pay very well either. <laughs> so I ended up on the, uh, the science path and, you know, kind of went down a road of getting a chem- started with a biology degree, added on a chemistry degree because I had to take a lot of chemistry anyway, and then did some, some uh, medical research when I was in undergrad. I was fortunate to have a professor that I got to work with at the National Cancer Institute who kind of steered me on, on a PhD program path. And I did start a PhD program in biochemistry right after college. And, you know, that was kind of a little bit of a fork in the road for me because it was the first time I really didn't love something to do with a, an educational process. And in retrospect, I think I probably would have preferred medical school, and that was the alternative path, but wasn't quite sophisticated enough at that point in my life to figure out how I was going to pay for that when my parents told me I was done after college. (laughs) So, you know, went with the path in a way of least resistance that, you know, was well-funded and, and, you know, a good path for many. And a year later, I ended up leaving that program, which was a hard decision because I'd never really quit anything in my life. But I realized it wasn't really a path that I felt passionate about, and I didn't have it probably in me to spend the seven years it was going to take to get through that program and really, you know, kind of dive in all the way. So, you know, at 22, I got married and moved across the country to Arizona from Maryland and completely upended my life, you know, and and never really looked back. Uh, Lots of, you know, twists and turns along the way, but ended up four years on a military base with my now ex-husband, who was in the Marine Corps, had a child. And toward the end of sort of his commitment to the military, because he had gone to the Naval Academy, I said, look, I really want to go back to graduate school. I've always wanted to, you know, have an advanced degree. And I had a nagging voice in the back of my head from a professor who had told me, you should really think, have you ever thought about being a patent attorney? You could use your science degree And you could go to law school. And I was like, no, I've never thought about that. But that nagging voice in the back of my head was still there when I was kind of revisiting the next fork in the road. So I packed up with my two-year-old and went to law school and went to Arizona State. And just on that, just to dive a little bit deeper on that, it's funny how, so I don't know how detailed that conversation was with your professor, whether it was just a... uh, was there a one-off conversation? It was tiny. It, isn't, that in, isn't that incredible that a tiny conversation? And I've been back to my school years later to share that, you know, and unfortunately that professor is gone and I wish I had had it. He's it's long since passed. And, you know, he had such a huge influence on my life from just a very small conversation. And Jennifer, I love those stories because I think it, it, it certainly as you progress in your career, not forgetting how important those little interactions are with those who are earlier in their career and how how powerful it. I mean, that story alone, that might have, yeah, that conversation might have been 30 seconds or a minute conversation and look at the impact that it had. It is such a powerful illustration and it's something I try not to forget that those moments that you might have with someone who, as I said, earlier on in their career just thinking about can be so powerful. 
I just love that example. Totally agree. So yeah, that was a big fork in the road for me. Went to law school, did much better than I expected to, and was very focused because I had a two-year-old. And I was fortunate to start my early part of my career in private practice with a law firm, Quarles and Brady, in Arizona. Kind of was focusing on IP, but also employment law and environmental law. Got a good breadth of things. Litigation was a nice uh, start. But an opportunity opened up to move in-house with Motorola with a friend from Law Review from, from school that had kind of brought this to my attention. And, you know, I was really interested in diving deeper into patent law. And Motorola had a great patent training program. So decided to do it. And, you know, I never, I didn't dislike private practice. I actually thought I'd probably go back eventually. But as you can see, I fell in love with the in-house practice and, and never looked back. So that was kind of how I found my way in-house. And then as to the NXP story, that's a whole long one too, but. Yeah, so, so we'll absolutely get there. So in those early years when you've, you know, you've just completed your law degree, you've started a private practice Tell me about what the kind of the, the influencing factors are you or, are for you in those early years and perhaps some of the turning points uh, and what's making an impact for you in those early years of practice? In the first couple of years, I mean, I think you just so desperately want to feel like you know enough about what you're doing because I think those first couple of years in private practice, I remember there was a fifth year attorney I worked with a fair amount and I would look at him and I'd be like, how do you know all this? How do you, you know, it just feels like so overwhelming sometimes. I'm like, I can't believe they're paying me to do this job, even though I know I worked hard and I dug into every bit of you know, research I could find. But and you're battling that imposter syndrome in that early bit because you've got no idea. You've got no idea what you're doing. Exactly. And you don't. And he, he said to me once, because I actually said to him, how did you, you know, get so far just five years in? And it seemed like an eternity as a first year lawyer. And he said, I don't know it all yet. I'm just more comfortable that I don't know it all. And that was another huge sort of thing that stuck for me. It's like, okay, it's you just have to get comfortable knowing that. And then today, I still don't always have the answers. I still don't know it all, but I'm much more comfortable knowing that I can figure it out. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that's right. In fact, I don't think that actually changes. But the greater, the greater comfort and confidence you have that you don't know everything. And in fact, it ends up being quite empowering. It ends up being empowering because it makes people around you comfortable and actually also empowers people around you to kind of step up and say, well, if you don't know, that's that's then my void to fill and here's how I can help. So I actually find that quite empowering. Mind you, for me, it's not difficult at all to be the least smartest person in the room. So no pretending there, but it does, I love the way that it does impact on others and it does actually actually just get everyone to step up and a level of confidence and uh, to, to fill, fill typically the void that I certainly know I leave. But I don't know if it's similar for you too. It actually still is. Yeah, I have, I have to surround myself by experts and I think the biggest part of my job is to find people that are smarter than me that can surround me and, you know, make me look like I know more than I do. <laughs> so then tell me, so you get into the in-house, of course, and then most of your career, of course, in the semiconductor space. I know you had, I think it was 12 years with Freescale Semiconductor. Tell me about just your time in the industry and uh, any kind of mentors or sponsors and also whether or not, I don't know whether it's particularly a male-dominated industry and whether that, that, that brought up any challenges for you and how you navigated perhaps those challenges. So, yeah, so I started, you know, with Motorola 
And I actually started in the satellite systems group. So it really was rocket science at the time. I was writing patent applications on satellite systems. And it was uh, it was a little overwhelming at the beginning, but fascinating technology. And I actually, you know, it was a very nurturing environment. And, you know, while the industry is very male dominated, you know, hasn't personally been been a stumbling block for me because I think I've been with companies that, you know, really do value diversity and inclusion, but I can, there are, we can come back to the later, you know, kind of the challenges in the industry. But as far as my career path, I, you know, was writing patents, but I had some, some experience from the firm in both litigation and contracts and M&A work. So I was fortunate to have some opportunities to work on some really big transactions in the satellite systems area from an IP perspective and kind of just became a little bit of a deal junkie after that. So sort of worked my path with Motorola into more of a, a transactions bent for a while rather than the uh, patent focus, but moved back and forth and was fortunate to have some really great mentors and some you know, senior managers that kind of took an interest, could see that I maybe had some potential and, you know, really kind of offered me some opportunities to step way out of my comfort zone, to take on some management challenges fairly early on, to work on some really complicated deals. And, you know, it was a company that had, you know, a huge law department at the time I started. I think there were 300 of us between IP and and commercial. And uh, so really, you know, got to see some really interesting stuff. So that was great. And Motorola actually moved me to Austin from Arizona to work on a special project. And when that, you know, wrapped up, I, I actually was sort of in between things and sitting here in Austin thinking, oh, what have I done? I'm not sure where I go next. And I got the opportunity to get back into the transaction side and work on the spin out of Freescale from Motorola. Okay. That was a spin out. Okay. Yeah. So we spun out Freescale was Motorola's semiconductor division. We spun that out back in 2004, took it public in 2004 also. And then we got bought out in what was then the largest tech buyout ever in history, not anymore, but, you know, by a consortium of private equity investors. So we, you know, kind of went along that path for a few years until we took it public again, like six years later. And then and then the uh, merger came about. Well, you know, I was the chief patent counsel at the time of Freescale after the spin out for a little over 10 years and then uh, moved into the general counsel role at Freescale back in 2014. And then the uh, whole transaction started. So that was quite a, a baptism by fire. I mean, two years into that role, we, we were merging the company with NXP, who had a similar history of Philips spinning out its semiconductor division and the two companies then merged back in 20, I guess it was 2015. So yeah, 2015, 2016 timeframe. So that was a fascinating transaction. And I had sort of expected I would leave because there was a general counsel already at NXP, but was asked to stay on and take the IP role again with a plan to eventually assume the GC role there when he retired, which did eventually happen after a little interim hiccup in the road from the uh, qu- attempted Qualcomm transaction. So it's kind of a bumpy road there. Okay, so so you were a little bit in, a little bit out, a little bit in, and in the end, <laughs> you were all in, of course. So then tell me about those early days of all in and taking on that role of executive vice president and general counsel. How do you then, what are the early days, what's the first 100 days look like for you and how do you wrap your arms around 
what the role is and, and identifying what your pro- early priorities are going to be. Yeah. And, you know, and I've kind of now got sort of context for that in several different aspects because I did it once at Freescale coming in from a different role and then at NXP kind of twice, once in the IP role and then once again uh, taking the general counsel role. So it's, it's definitely that first 100 days is very important. I've learned and I've watched this with multiple executive transitions. I was fortunate in that I wasn't really coming from an outside company ever. And I had lots of time to think about this and to kind of get to know the people and get to see some of the challenges. Because usually I would say the first 100 days are about really figuring out what the challenges are and what your talent base is, right? So for me, you know, at least post-merger or in, in any of these instances, I was transitioning from, you know, somebody else's department, basically, and trying to figure out what was the mark I was going to make on the department. And, you know, I didn't want to fix things that weren't broken. So I was, you know, trying to make sure I, first of all, wanted to embrace the things that worked well and not make unnecessary change because change is always challenging and disturbing for organizations while it can be invigorating. But I, you know, I think kind of figuring out in these instances, like post-merger, how to really bring those departments together because we did do, you know, a true merger and it wasn't like one department stayed and the other one got knocked out, right? So we tried to pick the right group of people and, you know, there were a lot of very good people we had to let go because, you know, we could, we only had one position for many of these jobs. So, so figuring out how to make that department really be able to be functional with a true merged set of talent, which, you know, turns out to pose a lot more challenges than are readily apparent when you start on that journey. So we had, you know, great talent. And then it was trying to figure out how to really create one team with that, with a shared vision and a shared sort of way of working and cultural objectives. And so we've, we've still spent a lot of time, you know, in the last three to four years, still working that journey to truly being one NXP, you know, legal department, not a freescale or former NXP legal department. And any, any kind of lessons now, having been through that journey a few times, things perhaps you wouldn't spend so much time on or things you'd, you'd, you'd be spending more time on if you had that time again. Yeah. And I think kind of, well, in the additional, you know, benefit and bonus of a company like NXP is we are a global, very global international company. So I think coming from Freescale, which while it was a global company, was very focused on the U.S., going to a true global company. You know, I think one thing that we all kind of underlooked was the cultural differences, you know, not just the company culture, but, you know, we all thought, I think a lot of people think they know how to operate in different cultures, but, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time after the fact that, you know, realizing how many differences there are and how important it is when we talk about inclusion, inclusion is important, not just from a diversity and gender and race perspective, but just from, you know, kind of a cultural background and, and how people interact and what perceptions you give and, you know, little things you do, like talking too fast as Americans when you're dealing with, you know, people that English isn't always their first language. So, And it's such a fascinating 
part of the journey and it's it's all it's it's impossible i think to prepare for without the experience because you can you can often talk about look there are cultural differences you know internally within this particular you know a country or region but then you've got to consider others but i just think until you've actually gone through it you've got some of the scars too and some of the, it's it's a, it's really hard to prepare for it is but it's so important because as you do it, you, you build more scars if you don't do it right in the beginning. And then you're, you're back there trying to remove scar tissue instead of, you know. I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. And look, I think the approach that you take, the sensitivity you have around it, the making yourself a little bit vulnerable to also to what you don't know so that you're bringing in other people to help essentially educate you in relation to those cultural differences Again, empowering others and being, as I said, being quite open about the pieces that you might not know about or that you're just trying to learn about too. I think, I think that certainly helps to kind of minimise the level of that scarring or, or, or hopefully at least allow a quicker healing of the scar tissue that you, that you talked about. Fascinating. So then I talked a little bit about the, the kind of the identifying the priorities and, and you know, bringing all the, the team together working out the talent pool essentially and what talent you'll need moving forward no doubt making some of the hard decisions because you'll have had great people in the organization but there is only one position left are there any particular when you're making those really difficult decisions what are the kind of factors that are driving the outcomes i suppose of the of those more difficult decisions yeah, and you know, we there were different there are different ways of approaching this. I think you know we saw some areas of the company where you ended up with kind of a group of people that was all in one location or was predominantly from one of the companies. I had made and, and actually this was kind of a joint decision with the you know the whole management team of what was then you know kind of the merging entity that we truly wanted a merged group of people that was made up of legacy Freescale and legacy NXP people that was a true mix that had that was in multiple locations, not all sitting in one of the locations. And so that has been, I mean, a blessing in so many ways and a, a really amazing thing. But it also, you know, creates a lot of challenges with communications and, you know, time differences and all that. But, uh, but that was, and I think still was the right decision to really have a diverse organization that, you know, represented a lot of different skill sets, a lot of different backgrounds and experiences with, you know, different parts of the company, different, you know, skill sets that were particular experience areas. And, you know, we were, it was, it's a Dutch company, right? So we, we have a very strong European presence and we've got, you know, a lot of corporate governance needs and, in the Netherlands, we've got, you know, a really strong intellectual property function that, you know, tends to be, it is spread all over the, the globe with, you know, a strong presence in the U.S. And then we have commercial team that, you know, has to operate with all of our business lines all over the place. And we, the company had previously organized the legal team predominantly by regions. So you ended up with a lot of just sort of kind of cut off, you know, not really completely integrated a little bit siloed a little bit siloed and we didn't really want that we wanted to make sure as we merged this company that that truly was focused on a business line focus not a regional focus so that was 
a bigger undertaking than was necessarily apparent in the beginning to, to make that change happen. But again, I think the right one. And then l- looking looking forward, I suppose that, you know, a few 12, 24 months into the future, what are some of the challenges that you see, I suppose, more broadly around the legal function, the, the role of the GC? What's keeping you up at night about you know what what you know the challenges over the course of the next twelve and twenty four months and what's your thinking around that? It's a great question. It's a lot different than it would have been five years ago, right? It's less substantive legal issues, you know. And I think the world is in a unique place right now. We've just been through, and I guess we're not through fully a global pandemic. We're you know we're in a very geopolitically charged environment. And I think the role of the general counsel inside companies has, is really changing, continues to change, but already has changed in the last few years and has really grown in significance and importance. You know, gone are the days where you can like think you're acting like a law firm lawyer that can go focus on specific problems and give a, a good legal answer. You know, I mean, you really you have to be an integral part of the business management team. And, you know, yes, you are responsible for all the legal functions, but, you know, there's a much broader scope with ethics and risk management and corporate governance and corporate citizenship and ESG nowadays. So, you know, I think GCs are, and I have been too, asked to take on broader roles than we have historically. And I've heard that theme quite a lot, of course, that, you know, much more than a black letter lawyer, ethics, risk management, corporate governance, sustainability, all of those issues. What are the attributes that uh, you think you need? And perhaps some some of those who are earlier in their career, looking at the way the role of the general counsel is starting to evolve, what are the attributes that you'd be advising people to really focus on to best prepare themselves? Yeah. Understanding business dynamics, which isn't something you really focus on in, in law school, but I would say most of the law firm lawyers I deal with have a much broader sense of business dynamics than I ever did when I was in a law firm even. so. But if you're in-house, you really need to understand the, the financial aspects, understand how revenue is recognized because it matters in your contracts, understand you know all the different aspects of kind of how the supply chain works because the last year for all of us has been a huge rude awakening and kind of the vulnerabilities of supply chains. So, you know, it's just, and, and then there's the whole geopolitical environment and we've, you know, kind of gotten a, a very deep dive into the inner workings of geopolitics in the last couple of years and how that's changing everything from who your customers can be to what your supply chains are going to look like to, you know, what sort of risks you need to plan for in the future, because it's definitely a brave new world out there, as we've all learned in the last couple of years. And I mean, those skills and understand and being able to, to provide input across all of those areas and understanding the business dynamics too. So, so, so when the management team and the CEO is looking to you, Jennifer, what is it specifically? I hear a lot about Look, it's it's actually just it's the judgment. It's not necessarily the legal. It's the being able to apply all of your experience and judgment across all of these functions, essentially, and being able to lead them. So I'd like to hear a little bit about you. What what is it that the management team and the senior leadership team is looking from looking for from someone like yourself, given the kind of breadth you've got to cover right now? Yeah, I think that's a a great point, Jim, on judgment, because that really is, when it comes right down to it, that's the one characteristic of a GC that you just, you can't not have 
good judgment and the willingness to make hard decisions because nobody wants you to bring them a long, nice legal memo and say, here's the risks. Here's what you could do. They want you to have digested all that and tell them what to do. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell them what to do. And we're trying train that way. Here's, you know, here are all ups and downsides. Here's the risk. Now you decide. And we kind of hand it over and, uh, but couldn't be further from the truth. That is not a luxury of, of a, a general counsel role inside. And I mean, there are times when, you know, obviously we can say, look, there are a couple different ways to approach this situation. And it's really a business call as to, to where we want to go. Right. But, but, you know, I, I still am expected to have an opinion, what makes most sense. And if I was making the business decision, what I would do. So, you know, I think that's, it's important from that perspective to really understand all the subtleties of what underlies the, the business, you know, rationale for, for where you might proceed based on two different paths that have different legal implications possibly. And it's not just legal implications. I mean, like you said, it's ethics. A lot of it is, you know, you have to be the corporate conscience and kind of steer things even when there's not a clear legal answer and there's some gray areas, you know, you also have to step back and say, look, we are an ethical company. We believe in making decisions that are the right thing to, you know, we do the right thing, even when it's a hard thing to do sometimes. So sometimes, you know, when you've got multiple stakeholders involved, you have to be the one that can step in and say, yeah, we could do all these different things, but it's not good for our reputational value. It's not, you know, there are different from a public policy standpoint, even though we can legally do this, it's not going to be viewed very well if we get into some other situations. Jennifer, I have to say, I really like the way you put that. The corporate conscience, and ultimately, I expect that's what the senior leadership team is looking to from you or from anyone in that position, and probably rightly so, expect you're as well-placed as anyone else to identify what, what that corporate conscience is and what it embodies and what are the decisions that, are, that align with it. I know that NXP is is a very strong advocate for sustainability. Any particular kind of sustainability goals or outcomes that you're working on, Jennifer, or or the legal team is involved in that you'd like to shout out? Yeah, sure. ESG is a very uh, hot topic these days, um, as you can imagine. And, you know, we we really have, uh, we've always, it's been an area that NXP has always kind of tried to take a thought leadership role and you know, kind of do the right thing for the environment and whatnot. But with the enhanced uh, focus, we're actually, you know, getting to the point where we're looking at kind of the, the types of measurable goals we can have just from a broad breadth of not only the environmental aspects that we've always kind of focused on and continue to focus on, but also, you know, social aspects in particular, diversity and inclusion is a big focus for the company right now. And, you know, I think will be for for the foreseeable future, you know, and in the governance areas, we are making sure that we've got robust governance practices, which, you know, I think we always have, but, you know, you can always look at that and kind of see what else you need to do to make sure that we're kind of looking at the the direction of where things are, are headed. For us, though, one of the big areas is, you know, just our product portfolio, because we do, we are kind of uniquely positioned to support others and our customers and their sustainability goals. So I think that's, you know, really, I think, you know, we're kind of having that awakening 
and realizing how uniquely positioned we are to really sort of help with our product portfolio to sort of lean a kind of on a forward looking way in automotive and in different areas for ESG type things. Talk to me a little bit about development of talent, perhaps in the legal department. What are some of the things that you look for in the hiring of people, developing of people and nurturing and perhaps the impact of mentors or sponsors, either on yourself or or more broadly that your you know the impact that you're looking to have on others in the team. Tell me about that too, because it's such an important part of everything that we do, developing talent around us. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so you know, I've been blessed with a wealth of talent in our team and you know, a lot of it sort of came to me. Some of it I've hired. So I you know, I, I've started with a strong foundation and a lot of really senior experienced people, which is fabulous. But, you know, legal teams are fairly flat by nature. So trying to keep people engaged when you're in a fairly flat organization, that there aren't a ton of opportunities for vertical movement. We, we do focus on trying to give some different lateral experiences and, you know, try to, and we're, we're thinking about some of those all the time, like moving people into different roles where they get to try different things. We've even had people move out of the legal team into other functions. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But it's, you know, it's one of those things where you really need to be, to me, fundamentally, I never want to stand in someone's way of taking a different role, if that helps them develop, even if that rolls outside the company, because we've had a number of people that have left the company and came back in too. And they always come back with a new set of experiences. So, you know, there's a whole different set of paths by which we can do that. We, you know, have had teams internally that work on development programs where, you know, we'll do continuing education programs that we'll have our firms come in and and do for people and try to cross train in areas that, you know, they haven't really had exposure to. You know, we do kind of let people put their hand up when they want to take on different assignments. Sometimes they're doing that in addition to their day job and, you know, they acknowledge that. And, you know, everybody's got a different appetite for how much you know that means to them but but for me that that is a characteristic of our team that we do try to build we want people to be thought leaders in their field we want them to take on challenges of outside speaking and you know doing things that push them out of their comfort zone sometimes to really try to stay on top of things because it it could be easy to just sort of keep your status quo and and not really step out of your comfort zone so that's yeah, certainly keeping comfortable is, I think I might have mentioned this on an episode last week too, but uh, I talk about comfort being the enemy of growth. It's really, it is really hard to grow if you're in a very comfortable position. And usually when you look back in your career and you're looking at the, what you're perhaps most proud of or where you learned the most, it's almost always when you're incredibly uncomfortable. And yeah, I, I think that's, that's just the nature of, of how we are. What about in recruiting people, Jennifer, are there any, has your strategy around recruiting talent changed over the years? Is there anything that you look for now that you perhaps weren't looking for or weren't testing for previously? And one specific thing I'll call out because it's it's been top of mind for me for various reasons in the last month or so, but the experience versus potential debate, what should we be looking for? Should we be looking for experience? Or should we be looking for potential or is it a combination of both? I'd love to hear your thoughts on your journey in recruiting and whether that's, you know, hiring people, whether that's changed in what you've been looking for or what you're looking for. 
No, I think that's a really great point. And I do think our philosophy has changed on that. There were many, many years where we would not touch anyone with less than five years experience. And we you had to be an expert. We don't have time to train. You know, that was kind of the mentality outside of, although I will say Motorola was really good at hiring kind of people, you know, that were wanting to change from engineering to patent law and training them. And that was a really successful program that took a lot of energy. But in more of a general legal context, we kind of felt like we needed an expert. We don't, you know, sometimes we don't have anybody else who has that expertise. We are now changing our philosophy a little bit and trying to hire some younger talent that, you know, that's and not necessarily younger in age, but younger in, in uh, experience that uh, is, you know, kind of willing to learn in certain areas and start with, because, you know, we have a whole breadth of work. We have some work that's super complicated and you really need to be an expert to do it. And we have other work that, you know, you can do when you're less experienced and that we don't necessarily need to have someone who's a 20 year lawyer doing it and they might not really appreciate doing it. So, you know, I think bringing some younger talent in newer talent to, and sometimes even not long out of law school talent to do some of those jobs has been definitely a new learning experience for us. And so far pretty successful. We've been, we found some great talent that way and, you know, really need to build our bench because, you know, a lot of us have been there for a long time and not, and we believe very strongly in succession planning. So we're, we've been changing our focus on that. And I find that people actually enjoy working with training new talent. I mean, it does take a certain amount of energy and, you know, you have to have the bandwidth to do it and to make sure that the, that the appropriate projects are assigned so that people have the opportunity to succeed and also, you know, can't get in too far over their head to the point that it could be detrimental for the company. So it's, it's a fine line. But I think to me, what I look for most is mindset and attitude as much as sometimes more than experience when I'm looking for hires in that area. And, you know, we've got part of when you asked about the 100 days and, and the process after the, uh, the when I took this role, we really focused on sort of what our vision is of what we do for the company and how we do it. So we have our our mission is enable, guide, protect. You know, we enable the business, we guide the company and serve as the corporate conscience. And in the end of the day, we're the backstop that protects the company either from third party claims or from itself. So that's sort of the, the base uh, elevator speech of what we do. In terms of how we do it, we've we worked as a team to kind of really define what we need to do to make the company successful and what people in our team wanted to be, how we wanted to be viewed by our clients and our customers in the company. And so we have what we call our PACE values, P-A-C-E, which is, and this is how we kind of look at people coming into the department. We want them to be proactive. We want them to be agile and able to adapt to change. We want them to be collaborative. We don't want super chickens, as I, you know, as we've sometimes joked that just kind of want to uh, rule the roost without collaborating with anybody else. And we want them to be effective, which is a combination for us of excellence and efficiency. So, you know, once you kind of put some parameters around there, it's a lot easier to screen candidates to see if they really fit sort of the culture that you're trying to create in the department. And I think that's a really good point. I've been through that quite recently, where it's Unless you've actually written down and defined what those cultural values are and what the examples are, it's unless you've got that framework, then you're kind of recruiting in a vacuum. You're not, what are you judging against? Sometimes it's instinct, sometimes, 
but I've certainly found that really helpful from a the parameters and what you're assessing. Some stuff is always hard to assess, but you know, you talked about mindset and attitude, which I think is absolutely right. A couple of different ways of putting those attributes. It's the, to me, probably one or two most important things are that the, the curiosity factor, and that is that the willingness to and eagerness to learn and a bit of the grit too. So if you can put all of those together, they are superpowers. The if you don't have the curiosity and the willingness and the drive to learn and really get a buzz out of learning, it can be harder. And courage. I mean, you have to have the courage to speak truth to power sometimes. And so that's, you know, the grit is part of that. Grit is really being willing to work hard, but also, you know, having the confidence to speak up when something's not right, because that gets back to our sort of corporate conscience function. It does. And I often talk about creating an environment where it's actually safe to speak. It's all well and good to say we have these principles and that, but if you haven't created the environment where it's absolutely safe to call out where those principles aren't being met or there's conduct which is you know, not consistent, then it can be ineffective and corrosive because the team say, well, here's what you're saying to us and to the world, but here's how you're acting. That's not what we see, yeah. Yeah, it's not what we see. And what counts is what we see reminds me of as my girls were growing up something i'd read and i always talked about and i'm not sure if this is appropriate or not but i'm going to say it anyway never listen to what he says always watch what he does that's kind of action speak louder than words yeah it, it does and, and, and i think that 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 applies across some um, all, all different aspects of life jennifer can you tell me what have you spent too much time worrying about in the past which on reflection was not time well spent so many things. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think in my younger years, as I was saying, you know, I, I always worried so much that I was going to make a mistake and that, you know, I was going to disappoint somebody because I didn't get the right answer or I didn't, you know, kind of have the perfect, you know, I think uh, for a long time for me, kind of perfection was the enemy of good enough, right? And I've kind of learned to look the opposite way at that and really practice the art of good enough. It's like sometimes you need to know when to stop, right? And not to kind of spend that extra five hours on something and say, look, this is this is enough for what you know we need to do. It's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to have to be perfect. And so kind of beating myself up, you know, feeling like I never knew quite enough or whatever. And instead of just realizing that having that, that faith and confidence that I could figure it out, you know? Could you imagine how many millions or billions of hours have been wasted amongst the population on exactly what you've talked about, beating ourselves up about trying to get to perfection, having all the answers, disappointing people. And the only thing that, and I haven't worked out a cure other than age and experience, which, and you never really get out of the habit. I don't know if you ever really do, but you learn, you're much better at living with it. I do wonder... Because no matter how much you try and encourage those that are earlier not to do things that typically you and I might have done, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's just a natural part of evolving as a person. You have to go through it to get to the point of recognizing perfection is the enemy of progress and getting that balance right. And some of us are more risk adverse than others, right? As, as people who tend toward the legal profession, we're already risk adverse. So I think that, you know, makes us a little conservative and unwilling to take reasonable risks and try different things, you know. I've got one more question for you. The hardest thing you've ever done 
personally or professionally, whatever you'd like to share with us? Raising children. <laughs> By far. That, now, now, that shit is hard. <laughs> Let me tell you, raising kids, I second that. That is the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, when I kind of look back, and there have been, you know, plenty of hard times and different uh, jobs I've had, but raising human beings to be functional, contributing parts of society, and, you know, it's one of those things that, like you said, is a journey you learn along the way and wish you could sometimes go back and redo things, but fortunately, they survive us, and and hopefully thrive <laughs> despite of us. <laughs> yep. And look, doing the best we can, creating that environment where they do kind of learn. And sometimes the learnings take a while. Even now, I'm thinking, I'm learning right now, even though my parents might have said it 30 or 40 years ago, sometimes it just takes a long time to bake. But I think what I'm confident in is all of the nagging and that. You might not see the results immediately, but it's kind of, it's there, it does it takes a while to bake sometimes, and sometimes we're not. Sometimes it might be when we're not even there. Yeah, it, it, but it does. I have a thirty. My oldest son is thirty-one, and I see things he does that I know he learned from me come out, and it's just this really gratifying feeling. <laughs> yeah, a little giggle, <laughs> Jennifer. It's been fantastic speaking to you. I've had an absolute blast. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's been great. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.